AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Stan, uh, there's a lot in the news about bounties lately, especially with the new Star Wars show about bounty hunters. I understand you have a story about uh, a bounty put on some hackers. Uh, yes, so last week I believe the FBI uh, put a $5 million bounty uh, for two people behind the Drydex uh, banking malware. Um, you guys are probably very familiar and maybe many of our viewers are familiar with this malware family. Um, it spreads through phishing attacks uh, or phishing emails really. So you, you've probably seen many of these emails that contain maybe an attachment says click here, right click, enable macros for the document to open. And generally, uh, at that point, you get some sort of a Trojan installed. So there were a couple of indictments that came out um, that named these individuals specifically. This is something that doesn't happen often, actually. I would say probably every two, three years is when you actually get um, specific individuals named um, with a cyber crime. Uh, but this quote uh, in the Department of Justice um, press release really caught my attention, which is, you know, the FBI is trying to send a strong message to let like all adversaries and uh, kind of criminals know that uh, they will be held accountable. So you might be doing a crime maybe, you know, five years ago, they are probably trying to stop you and um, they will hold you accountable for it. What led them to, to release this bounty now? Is it, are they sending a message or did something sort of tip them to this them being available. Um, it feels like there's maybe a little bit more behind the scenes here. Some of the uh, cyber crime here goes back many years. Yeah. So they're saying that uh, these people have operated for 10 years or maybe even more and have amassed uh, or tried to steal over $100 million uh, during this time frame, uh, which is a lot, a lot of money. Uh, and some of their crimes is not just running the malware, it's actually the financial aspect of how do you take a hundred million dollars from crime and basically launder it or clean it so right, that right. you can seem like a successful businessman. And the thing that these, uh, I guess, uh, criminals were doing uh, is using um, uh, money mules um, and some kind of like, uh, you might have actually even seen some of these ads work from home do a simple, easy job, receive packages, send them somewhere else. Right, right. Well, some of those jobs are actually related to this kind of money mule operation where you buy things and send them somewhere else. You don't really know why you're doing it. You're getting a little bit of a commission, uh, but ultimately you might be um, are assisting in this crime. So one other thing about the indictment that was released and as well as this, this bounty, uh, is that uh, the, uh, the handle of one of the criminals is Aqua, which is a handle that was used maybe three or four years ago in 2015 that was mentioned in another indictment for two other individuals who are actually already serving time and I think are pretty much have served their time who were part of the Zeus banking Trojan. So uh, I guess in 2015, there was something very similar going on. So these people, these um, criminals are kind of still out there, uh, which is why the FBI is putting together the bounty uh, for any information leading to their capture and arrest. So can you, 
tell us a little bit more about Drydex, maybe just to kind of give more context to what these guys are accused of operating? Yes, so Drydex itself is a banking trojan, but I think it can do much more than just uh, uh, be a banking trojan, so to speak. It's actually like a password stealer. So if you get a Drydex infection on your computer, um, it's gonna try to steal uh, any kind of uh, passwords you have stored in your browsers, um, in your maybe password saves, and some people actually uh, create a document, a notepad, or a Word document or something like that, and they label it my passwords, and they write all their passwords down. So adversaries like this, they'll be looking for Word documents like that. Um, some malware we've seen tries to steal your credentials to like any S uh, SSH or uh, SSH keys you have, or VNC, um, anything like that. Um, so this one in particular was obviously trying to steal all passwords, uh, but what they were doing is they were trying to figure out like how do you monetize people's passwords. Right. And one of the clear ways to monetize people's passwords is uh, to log into their banking and then uh, once you log into their bank account you can authorize different kinds of transactions. And in these indictments they actually named um, actually not as many victims as there actually turned out to be. Uh, but several victims were actually named, I think maybe about six or seven different kinds of businesses um, all over the place. And I know we track... Can we still see Drydex? Drydex uh, is something that we do see in a way. It's actually quite related to Zeus, but we see a lot of like old uh, infections on abandoned infrastructure. Mm. But there are many, many variants of very similar malware. So um, um, a very new and pertinent threat we're tracking is called TrickBot. Um, it does impact um, hundreds of uh, different, actually it's probably thousands of victims out there and it spreads in very similar fashion. So uh, if, it's, you know, if it's not these criminals, there's always some other kind of criminals out there um, that are perpetrating a similar thing and we're paying attention to it and uh, we're kind of tracking it. Is there any evidence to show why this is coming up now? For Like you said, so they're saying our memory is long, right? But something may have, must have, just broken some sort of evidence. I don't have any special insight yeah. on that unfortunately right. it might be just uh, uh, kind of a re reminder before yeah, maybe yeah. the holiday season or something like that to make these people a little bit more visible you know there might be somewhere where they're trying to relax for the holidays or really right, enjoy right. their time off but this will make them be a little bit more uh, well wanted really right they'll make them yeah I wonder too make, like make them uncomfortable. We, we've seen in the news you know some of these um, operators of botnets retire, right? Oh, I'm getting out of the game, made all of my money. This is kind of that a message for, for that sort of activity too. Even if you're retired, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, no, this guy hasn't really retired. Uh, the FBI, as Stan mentioned, back in like 2015, managed to shut down a big chunk of Drydex's infrastructure and then a year and a half or so later, they were back. Uh, they they rebuilt it because they didn't get the all of the people behind it. And these two guys, um, especially the the one guy uh, here, has moved on. You know, not just from Drydex. He was the one who was uh, apparently in charge of what the Justice Department is calling Evil Corp. So somebody was watching Mr. Robot. And uh, and uh, he's 
supposedly got ties to Russian intelligence and, you know, so some nation-state stuff. So that that's one of the big reasons why um, even if they had shut down some of the infrastructure, they still wanted to go after this particular guy. Yeah, I think another key thing to point out is, you know, this was a, an international operation here uh, with assistance from many different governments, Netherlands, yeah. Germany, Belarus, Ukraine, and Russian Federation. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that working with such a large worldwide organization can also be difficult, but something must have happened. Right, you're right. Directly. Something in the investigation or yeah. the agreements between these countries must have led to a point where they were comfortable making you know, this taking accusation. This step. Yes. Yeah. I think this is just a reminder to all adversaries out there that you know their activity can be subject you know they will be subject to arrest i think it's clear that law enforcement you know maybe if we look back 15 years ago um we were talking a lot about stories where law enforcement maybe didn't know how to process these kinds of crimes uh, or they didn't have the resources to process these kinds of crimes but i think today we can say that they do have the resources they do know how to um uh, prosecute these things. I'm sure there is much more that could be done, uh, but this is a, an example of a step in the right direction uh, for properly prosecuting. Uh, you know, right. You know, yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about protecting ourselves, protecting the network, protecting you know, our assets, but this kind of that extra step of attribution and law enforcement getting involved and hopefully disincentivizing this malicious activity. Right. Yes. And, and we need that. Like we can't, you know, as corporate folks, we can't we can't, you know, issue something like this. But and, that and should help particular us. particular actors, they're accused of having stolen, you know, a hundred million dollars or something like that. I mean, this is not a small amount of money that they've stolen over time. So that's another incentive for you know, law enforcement to to continue to go after them and chances of them getting much of it back may be small, but you know, if there's that kind of money involved, there's incentive to, to keep after it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the disincentive is there. And I think the message, like you started with Stan, you know, sending this message, it's, it's helpful to our, our world. I think this is a perfect story that says crime doesn't pay. You know, these people uh, have been running a, a large botnet, stealing credentials, victimizing a lot of both large and small businesses. Um, and they've largely went on, you know, seemingly unpunished for 10 years or more. They've been obscured maybe through some sort of anonymization. But I think we can see here that they're not as anonymous, maybe even as anonymous as they thought. Hey, Jim, uh, you got a story about a new zero day in VMware. Yeah, I do. Um, and this actually caught my eye for a couple of reasons. Um, it, basically, the story is that there was a white hat hacker conference in China, uh, the Tianfu Cup. It's a security competition um Similar to some that you know you may have heard of, like Pwn to Own, every year at Cansec uh, West. This particular one, uh, a, a researcher managed to escape ESXi, that's VMware's product, in 24 seconds. They were able to escape and take over the the host. 
the, the CVE for this one was given a CVSS score of 9.8 out of a possible 10, which makes this highly critical. Um, fortunately, the folks from VMware were at the competition, and the researcher um, you know, showed them how they exploited it, and VMware got a patch out right away. One of the aspects that got my attention was that, that this came out during the competition, and so as defenders, I think we need to be paying attention to these competitions, especially, as I said, like pwn to own and, and things like that, because every year the researchers will try out their exploits, and in this particular case, uh, the, they paid out $200,000 for this particular exploit, which was the highest uh, reward that they offered at this particular competition. You know, this story teaches us that if you use your powers for good, if you use your tech powers for good to identify security vulnerabilities or issues so that everyone is more protected, you could also get rewarded uh, instead of punished. The, the other thing, though, that got my attention is they were targeting um, ESXi, and apparently the exploit also works against Horizon, um, which are two of VMware's products that seem to be getting further inroads into a lot of enterprises. The vSphere ESXi is for use for hosting servers on, uh, you know, virtual servers on big bare metal platforms, and Horizon is for, used for hosting virtual desktop infrastructure. And so the fact that, the, that these guys were able to find you know, escapes there is, is significant. We need to be paying attention. As I said, fortunately, both of these uh, are this particular vulnerability was patched pretty quickly. But again, when you're in one of these virtual environments, how easy is it to migrate the workload to a different server so that you can patch one and migrate it back so you can patch the others? Um, it, is, it is kind of tricky. And so, you know, as, as defenders, these these kind of thing, these kind of stories always get my attention. What do you think about these competitions in general, Jim? Do you think they're a good idea, or do you think it sort of encourages sort of malicious activity? I have mixed feelings about it. I, yeah, I think um, it does, in in some sense, encourage folks to to dig a little deeper because there's a monetary reward involved bug bounty programs though can also provide you know a similar monetary reward um, the bad guys are going to look for them uh, anyway but i mean do you think that malicious actors sort of look for the byproducts of competitions like this and sort of use what what's being provided and I don't know, I, I'm just wondering if, if, if this is like a shortcut for them. Yeah, well, the the legitimate competitions, the, this one, the CanSec West, Pwn to Own one, um, 
they they don't give out the actual exploit until the companies have a chance to patch for it. Obviously, if there's a if there's a really high visibility one, then that gives the bad guys an idea of where to look. Yeah, it's it's the thing with all with any patches. It's how quickly do do we apply the patches? Because any time any product gets patched, the bad guys will immediately start reverse engineering the patch to figure out what the vulnerability was, and then you know depending on where the vulnerability is and what kind of you know what kind of privileges they can get and so forth and potentially what kind of you know money they can steal or whatever you know they're going to go ahead and try to exploit these even without the competitions as soon as the patch comes out you know that's been happening in Microsoft world on patch Tuesday you got exploit Wednesday I don't know. Like I said, I have, I have mixed feelings about it, but it's as as long as they exist, we as defenders need to be paying attention to them and see what products got exploited, and then look for the patches from those vendors if we use them, and apply them as quickly as possible. I, I, I agree with uh, Jim. I would say it's easy to have mixed feelings about these kinds of competitions. Uh, but if you look here, you know, the payout, I would say on the black market would be at least 10 times more for a, a patch like this that lets you escape out of the guest operating system, and if not more. Right? This is like one of the most coveted uh, things out there, I would, you know, exactly. co coveted kind yeah. of exploits out there. Uh, it's a premium exploit, so to speak. And I'm just looking at the article here. I was able to do it in 24 seconds. I'm sure yeah, he came prepared, but <laughs> he might have had it ready. But, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Though, um, so, I'm, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I'm glad they have these because if they didn't have this, then this person is obviously very smart and very clever, was able to find it, um, so could... Uh, somebody whose job it is to find these things all of the time and not report them and use them in a bad way. I, I am pretty sure we can see the side effects of things like that with like WannaCry. How does it spread with that SMB vulnerability? You know, that was not well known where released or when it became patched, like maybe people didn't deploy the patch right away. So it caused some of these bigger uh, issues, but um, you know, a competition like this lets us have the patches as soon as possible from the, the delivery of the, I guess, discovery of the vulnerability. So um, I think all in all, there's probably more pros for these than cons, I would say. Yeah, and that's, that's I think, where I come down to. Because like you said, it, the, the nation state actors are going to be looking for these things anyway. And the, the criminal element are going to be looking for these anyway. And as you said, on the black market, they're going to make considerably more than they're going to make at these competitions. So we need some incentive for the good guys to be looking for them, too, and reporting them responsibly so that they can get patched. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the whole concept of the bug bounty program, right? Yes. Sort of find things on your own terms before it's used against you. 
right? And it gives uh, participants a way to apply their kind of like mysterious black hat skills, these skills that everyone wants to have, but in a really positive way, I would say. Whereas they could easily be recruited by somebody with nefarious purposes, obviously somebody as talented as this um, could be doing something bad, but here they're doing something for the greater good. So right. it's definitely better to have a competition like this. Did this get patched yet? The ESXi, there are patches for version 6.0, 6.5, and 6.7. Um, and the Horizon platform 8.x. So there are patches out for all of them. They, they came out pretty quickly. So if you run any of these, check with VMware, download and apply the patches if you haven't already. You know, for us in software, maybe those are, there are some things you could automate uh, to protect and, uh, and, and help us find you know, weaknesses. Okay, so Joe, I understand you've got a story about a vulnerability that allows VPN connection hijacking? Yeah, so it's a, a new, some, some academic research from folks at the University of New Mexico found a Linux Unix vulnerability where you can hijack VPN connections. Um, it, it's, and ultimately inject payloads into VPN tunnels. But the way it works is it's a lot around guessing. So if you can, you know, determine uh, if where a user is connected, uh, potentially from a malicious access point or router, uh, and then you can get the sequence and acknowledgement order and numbers, um, you can insert yourself in the tunnel and start, you know, inserting packets. Um, it's a pretty advanced attack, but the, the real impressive thing to me is how widespread it could be. Um, so all versions of Linux and Unix, um, BSD, Mac OS, iOS, uh, Android operating system, really any OS that allows VPN, um, this is available. And, um, you know, it's, it's something where if the exploit is done properly, your VPN connection isn't as secure as you would expect, right? I mean, the reason to make a VPN connection is to have a secure connection to your work machine or to a sensitive server that, you know, you want to, you know, in, encrypt your, your login and your uh, communications with. So, um, you know, both in the, the level of access and the sensitivity, uh, really significant situation here. Things that you never think would be possible normally, you would think like, who would try that? Why would somebody do this? A research team showed us that actually guessing is sometimes a good approach to being able to compromise security. They were able to at least describe a mechanism by which you could compromise the integrity of a VPN connection. Um, I don't know, Stan, you did a bunch of research. Do you, do you want to maybe get a little more specific on how the exploit works? Uh, yeah, it's actually exactly uh, what you mentioned. I guess at a high level, it's one of those things that you say, this shouldn't be possible. Yeah. <laughs> Who would think of this? Um, but then these researchers basically said, well, uh, I guess it is possible. And the, the way I, I understood it to work is basically the operating system, which this is, um, 
I guess a Linux variant, uh, like yep. BSD, mostly, um, and things that are like BSD. So in the network stack, the way it operates is for certain types of messages, it sends a different re response right. depending on some other state. So let's say I try to ask you a question and you wanna like, for me not to know the answer, you're gonna keep giving me the, the same answer. No, 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 no. But one time I might ask you the question and you know in your mind that I, what I'm asking you is correct. You might smile while telling me no. Right. So in a way, this is kind of uh, very similar. So um, there's a lot of guessing, but because you, you kind of can check the, and the operating system allows you to check uh, it and gives you different answers basically, depending on where it is, you can actually figure out um, something that's within the tunnel. And the, probably the best use case for something like this is when you go to like a, maybe a cafe and you're using their Wi-Fi and maybe you're not even sure like about that Wi-Fi security, usually you use the VPN yeah. client, uh, one of the standard ones, you connect to a more trusted network and within that trusted network then you make additional connections. So but I guess the complexity is by the fact that you're in that cafe or whatever, you're sort of in a predictable VPN connection, right? You're, uh, I guess you're assuming that no, that VPN connection is like the holy, that's like the best <laughs> VPN, the most secure thing ever. Right. Um, but one thing you might not realize is that you're actually in no man's land, so to speak. You're like in a very dangerous, bad neighborhood, potentially, you know, if you right. think about this Wi-Fi cafe. And, uh, the adversary technically is, could potentially be controlling everything about it, including sending you malicious uh, questions to ask you like, oh, is it, are, are you running this IP address? Is this your IP address? Right, da, da, da. Right. And you're always saying, nope, nope, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to talk to you. But when he guesses the right IP address, he tells you, uh, still don't want to talk to you, but uh, yeah, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so by guessing some of these things, you're eventually able to get, I guess the holy grail uh, is being able to inject something into a TCP stream. So generally um, that shouldn't be too easy on the internet. It's pretty easy if you're like, if let's say you connect to my Wi-Fi station, it's right. really easy for me to redirect you to wherever I want you to go. Uh, but your VPN connection is supposed to prevent me from doing that. Well, this is like kind of breaking that assumption. Uh, so by doing just a lot of guessing and guessing like the entire four tuple, you know, yeah. they're guessing first of all the IP address that you have within the tunnel. That's the first thing you have to guess. The next thing you have to guess is like what IP address you might be connected to on the back end. So let's say you know you're using, I know you're using like an iOS device. You might be, I know you might be connecting to like um, update servers for um, Apple. Right. So now I know maybe get, can guess these other connections. And now I can just start guessing uh, the source port that you're using. And so now once I guessed all those items, um, then uh, you, you will respond to me and then I have to start guessing your TCP sequence numbers, which are also hard to guess. Right. Uh, but if I'm in line, then I can see what they might be and then from there, um, I'm able to inject my own payloads in there. And there's still a question of, well, what can I get you to do once I'm able to inject something into your TCP stream? Because it's not necessarily straightforward 
to get you to do something that I want you to do. In fact, even within the tunnel itself, there might be an SSL encrypted connection. Right. So it might be harder for you to inject something to an SSL stream. What you would be able to potentially do, though, is send a reset and tear down the SSL right. stream, right. tear down the VPK. Right. I mean, at the very least, you no longer have a trusted connection, right? Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Well, well there a couple of interesting things that I noted when I was reading the story was that in it didn't seem to show up on most Linux distributions until very recently. And the reason was a change in one of the default settings for the reverse path filtering, which is kind of esoteric. And if you're not a networking guy, you probably don't care that much about it. But until recently, the version of systemd that was used on a lot of the current Linux distributions uh, had set reverse path filtering to strict in that it would only respond to a, a packet on the same uh, network interface that that it that it came in on. You'd send the response back out the same one. When they changed this to loose is how this became a possibility because now instead of sending it on the virtual interface inside the tunnel, they could send leak some of the information out over the normal interface. So if you could spoof some traffic, especially if you could take over like the access point or, or be on the same network segment, if you could spoof some traffic, then this allowed this exploit to work by leaking some of that data um, out than not through the tunnel, but out directly through the other interface. The other interesting aspect is they suggested that this also would work with IPv6. My question that I haven't worked out for myself, and I haven't probably dug into this as deeply as you have, Stan, but you know, the, the thoughts that come to my mind is you know, because the address space is so much larger in IPv6, the, the first the first couple of stages trying to guess the the virtual IP inside the tunnel if you allow you know a, a slash 48 or a slash 56 or slash 64 for the tunnel for the you know the virtual network that's an awful lot of addresses to to try to be uh, guessing. And so while it's theoretically possible, I'm, I'm wondering about the practicality of it in IPv6. Uh, that was, you know, a couple of the things that got me when yeah. I was looking at it. I mean, back to your earlier point, I mean, there are a couple or a few mitigations, you know, listed, and it kind of makes sense. Basically, the mitigations are make your VPN connection harder to predict, you know, less easy to guess, right? So if you implement the reverse path filtering in that more strict mode, uh, you can implement Bogon filtering, and uh, you could also encrypt packet size and timing. Uh, all those, you know, they're not, probably not the panacea here, but they're gonna make it just that much harder per, to predict these parameters of your session, so. Um, but yeah, the, the part of the, that might be a little bit harder that would require actually modifying the VPN software as opposed to just a setting in the 
in the TCP stack is the, is the timing or the size of the packets. To, to do that, you'd have to have the VPN software padding out the, the packets, um, you know, maybe out to full MTU size or something. And what kind of impact is that going to have on, on the network? I don't know. Uh, the, 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 obviously, the first one, the reverse path filtering, is relatively easy to, to turn that back on. Right since that was the default until recently. But some of these others are going to require some thought as to how you can really mitigate it. And maybe, as I said, the, the VPN software itself, whether it be you know, IPsec, that's, that's actually kind of built into the network stack, so you need to make some changes there. Or some of the other ones, OpenVPN and WireGuard are two that were mentioned in the in the uh, advisory in the story. Yeah, I mean, the end of the story is a little bit shrouded in, in mystery. You know, the, the people who released the, the information, the research, they, they said they're planning to uh, release more technical details. And I think probably any kind of patching or, or response probably is waiting on that. So um, I expect, you know, more to come with the exact details of how this works but um, you know so far the researchers just said they're they're working on their white paper so let's see you can try using VPN you can try using authentication technologies SSL and things like that to protect yourself but you should know that if you don't control the access point that somebody might be able to um, lessen your security hey guys uh, so today I want to share with you the internet weather um, we're going to start with our top 10 most pro ports report. Um, and this is basically our way to understand the scanning activity that's going on on the internet. We look at it in different perspectives, uh, but this perspective is how much scanning is happening on specific ports by volume. Um, so this week, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, nothing really stood out to me uh, as a new port. Uh, that we've never seen before. So I decided to cover ports that we haven't covered in a while, port 23 and port 445 uh, TCP. So um, first, let's take a look at port 23 TCP and the activity going on on it. So this is activity over the last 900 days. So here in the top, I'm graphing the volume of scanning activity. You could see that three years ago, there were actually some pretty significant peaks uh, but today, the activity has kind of leveled out. And on the bottom, you have the thousands of IP addresses um, that are scanning or that are partaking in this activity. So um, you could see, again, three years ago, uh, there was a lot more of the IP addresses scanning. Uh, but over time here, even within the last year, uh, the activity has been like, you know, in about 50,000 IP addresses per hour or something like that as opposed to, you know, here in 2018, where it's, uh, I guess, way more, like 150,000, three times more. So, you know, my claim to fame is to take all these scanners and figure out, like, where are they coming from? Yeah. So I did a geographical mapping of all mm. of the IP addresses. And I think the best way to caption this chart here is to say, the internet is calling and it wants you to turn off uh, port 23 TCP telnet. <laughs> <laughs> because that's literally everywhere. Every place that has internet, I yeah. think, is basically lit up on this chart. 
uh, and it's really showing you um, how widespread. You yeah, know, I mean, I guess 900 days, right? Over 900 days. Uh, so I actually took the last 24 hours of scanning activity, oh, well, which was about 100,000 different IP addresses um, in that 24-hour period. They were scanning, but you could see, I mean, you could pretty much see where internet exists in the world yeah. uh, and maybe where it doesn't. Um, the areas that are uh, mostly unlit are either in like large, you know, deserts or uh, places where people don't reside or maybe don't have access to some of the like things like the internet. Um, so, yeah, I think this chart kind of speaks for itself. You know, this is very um, uh, loud scanning within seconds of connecting your router uh, or your modem to the internet. Um, you're going to be getting scanned on this port. So really make sure that as much as possible never to allow Telnet or anything to really reside over this port because somebody's going to come knocking. What would have been interesting um, is to go back. You went back 900 days, which took you back to August-ish of 2017. It would have been interesting to go back another year. I know it would have been quite a turning to the work through that much data, but because Mirai really kicked off in August of 2016, it would have been interesting to compare the baseline before Mirai first kicked off to the, what is now the background noise, which is still relatively high level of scanning there. That's a very good point, Jim. You know, I'll, I'm going to have to do that for the next time. I don't know why I picked 900. That was just like a, <laughs> a very round number, but you're right. Uh, that would have actually given us a much better baseline. But the, you know, the nowadays the baseline, the background noise, we're stuck with. I mean, I think this next chart you have is going to show that, right? The next chart is actually port 445 TCP. Ah, so more so WannaCry. So 4445 TCP is WannaCry. You guys know uh, that I've been doing something special. So with 445 TCP, we had a baseline which was about 10,000 IP addresses, which was the old, uh, I already forget uh, which worm uh, it was. Uh, Conficker. 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 But clearly it doesn't matter anymore because now we have the new worm called WannaCry. Right. Um, and every time I showed this chart, I always remember this peak right here in 2017, which was about August timeframe, because that's the weekend that probably every incident responder who works in cybersecurity got called in and was like, hey, there's this crazy exploit, there's patch, are we patched? It's worming. It's, it's worming, yeah, what are we doing? And if you could zoom in, I know you can't see it now, but if you could zoom in, there was a, a colossal, like a drop, like the activity had just stopped. And then when nobody was paying attention, basically, over the years, the activity started creeping back up. So what can we do uh, right now? Well, this threat is out there, it's spreading. There are a lot of infected machines. You know, some of them are gonna be coming online and offline. It's people gonna be deploying, um, you know, some of these devices that are vulnerable to this. Uh, but what can we do? We can track it. We can see is the activity getting better or worse? So I've been doing it every time I'm on um, th uh, uh, doing the internet weather. Um, so here we see, I guess the last time, the first time I did this was in April. Uh, you could see the activity was going down. And then the activity stayed the same, and then went down and went down, kept going down, stayed the same, kind of had a little bump. So uh, here's another bump. So I guess my question to you, this is what I've been asking all my guests, is what do you think 
uh, is going to happen next. Is the activity going to go down, stay the same, or go up? Um, and it could be a trick question because... Uh, uh, <laughs> I, well, it's a good trick question because I feel like you can't really fail at it. Like, I feel, I feel like, like any answer you give is going to be the right answer. I feel like I'm on with Markley. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm going to say it went continued to go down and played right. safe. That's a good, that's a safe bet. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I, I think long term it's going to level out. Um, short term it may drop a little before it levels out, but I think long term it's going to level out here at some still ridiculously high floor now. Some, you know, the new normal is way too much. Yeah, there's th tens of thousands of IP addresses scanning. Well, uh, the trick is it went up and down. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but ultimately, it went down, actually. You could have also said stayed the same because it approximately stayed the same. High five, Jim. We, uh, Jim, I think, is onto something that is going to eventually level out. And we're kind of seeing that here. Actually, if you look at the past few months, there's a slight downturn, but it's really le leveling out. It's like that long tail. Uh, that eventually goes down to, uh, well, like you said, a ridiculously <laughs> yeah. high baseline. Um, so that's what we have for uh, the probes report. So even though uh, I didn't see anything super exciting in the top 10, you could still see there's a lot of scanning activity and definitely something for us to learn and be aware of and make sure we're protecting. So next, I want to kind of pivot to a different way to look at the scanning data. And that's by looking at the volume by most sources probing. So most sources probing generally means a lot of IP addresses at the same time are doing scanning. And generally it means there's a botnet in play. Um, and those are of course important to, uh, to, for us to track. Um, so the two ports that jumped out at me, even though we've covered them in the past, um, are 8291 TCP and 8728 TCP. And I think the reason it's important to cover them and what I learned while covering them is they're actually related to the same thing. Oh. So uh, the next chart should make that be semi-apparent. So I took a look at uh, both of them superimposed together. And you could see um, the red here, I believe, is 8291 TCP. Um, and you could see that activity, both by volume and number of IP addresses, has been high, whereas the blue you can barely see, which would be eight, port 8728. Uh, but starting in, what is that, sometime July uh, or June of um, 2019, uh, so just a few months ago here, you could see that the blue and the red are in concert together. When one goes up, so does the other. Um, so I took a look at the last 24 hours of IP addresses scanning on both ports. And there's about 16,000 in each category, but 14, almost 15,000 of them, I think, or 14,000 of them overlap. Mm. So claim to fame, let's map them out geographically. And I think here the, war, the internet is also telling us uh, to not have these ports exposed because uh, there's a lot of scanning. But you could see, whereas in the first chart, there was basically scanning from everywhere, here there are geographical areas where uh, the scanning uh, is a lot louder in some regions. For example, just to highlight a few, you know, you see India, you see Thailand over there, Southeast Asia, Brazil, um, a lot of Central America you could see. 
Um, and of course, uh, Europe, North Africa, Middle East over there, you know, lots of scanning emanating from that area. Not so much, I would say, from North America, though. Yeah. Um, so whatever this threat is, it's obviously uh, much more pronounced internationally, I would say, than, um, let's say, in our region of the world here. So would you would you make the inference that the U.S. might be the target based on this? No, I think what I would say is that whatever the botnet consists of, the devices that it consists of, it's probably devices that are more mm. predominant in those other regions. Right. They are more vulnerable out there, and they've just happened to become infected. Whereas maybe that type of device is not prevalent here in the, uh, let's say, the US or North America. Although you could see, I mean, there are definitely hotspots right. where devices like that are used. They seem to be much in much more use um, out there in the world. Um, so you might ask yourself, like, what is this? Because this is what we ask ourselves. like. What are these devices and what are they looking for? Um, so, uh, looking at some honeypot data, oh I kind of came across uh, this port and this type of information, this uh, login thing, which caused me to start basically using my favorite search engine to start looking for this network pattern. Somehow, I came up on this tool, which is MK Brutus, which is a tool uh, basically written to brute force passwords for MicroTik routers. It's wow. like a tool written in Python. Um, so you can give it a list of all the passwords you have in your nice password list, including uh, admin, admin, and admin password, probably. Right. And um, try it against these different uh, interfaces. So um, a MicroTik router has many interfaces to manage, uh, to manage it, really. So there's Telnet, which we talked about, port 23, SSH, port 22, also a heavy scanner. Uh, but here, uniquely, you have Winbox um, and this uh, API. So 8728 is the API port. You can do different management functions, maybe, uh, with the router. Maybe you can get some information about it. Maybe you can put it into certain states. They also have HTTP, which we see a lot of scanning for that, looking for routers as well. Long story short, I was able to relate that both of these ports, actually, are related to the same type of product, which is a, a MicroTik router running router OS. And um, I even found inside of the tool the exact line of code uh, that would generate a packet like this um, that we can observe in uh, different sensor logs uh, that we have access to. Um, so what is this? This is basically devices that are looking for vulnerabilities um, in MicroTik routers. Um, these devices themselves, I took about 10 different ones. Um, and used Shodan to just search them around. I, I picked random IP addresses. And there didn't seem to be, I would say, a rhyme or reason for the IP addresses. Suffice it to say, they're probably themselves routers, like MicroTik routers or DVR or botnets. They might be part of Mirai or something similar. Um, so a lot of this, uh, you know, whoever is looking for this uh, has a botnet of compromised devices and is probably looking to extend that botnet by adding um, you know, uh, these MicroTik devices to it. And perhaps they're trying to use um, a username and password um, uh, for that. Uh, one important thing about MicroTik is, uh, it didn't come from the internet weather, is that we do see um, a, some adversaries actually utilizing compromised MicroTik routers for their own C2 infrastructure. Uh, command and control infrastructure. Um, so it's important for everyone if you're if you're 
using a MicroTik router or any other kind of like small office, home office router um, between your different business locations, you have to make sure that you secure it and you don't expose uh, these management ports on the internet side. You want to make sure they're only available on the local LAN side and not on the WAN side of the, of the router. Otherwise, something like this could happen to you. And just to be safe, even if you don't know how to do that, make sure you change at least the passwords. Uh, you know, at least make sure that it's not an easy to guess password. It's very complicated. This might be, I'm not saying you should do this, but you know, if you have to make a random password that you don't want to forget, maybe just glue it to the bottom of your router because the, uh, the attack vector here is a little bit different. You know, I, I don't want people to write down their passwords on a piece of paper, but it's almost better to do that in this situation than you have a default password uh, than to leave the default because the attack surface is different. Here, people are coming for, at you from a totally different, you know, it's not going to well, be... Well, and if, if someone breaks into your house and looks at the bottom of your router, you've got bigger problems. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You've got bigger problems. You should be looking exactly. for something else there. We consistently see MicroTik router being targeted for vulnerabilities, and it's something that really resonates because I feel like something like that is so prominent in the scanning that uh, you would expect something to be done to tailor that activity. Top 10 might change week to week, but there's always somebody out there looking for some vulnerability. Maybe it's not port 23, maybe it's not port 445, maybe it's a new vulnerability in, let's say, microtech devices. Uh, somebody always is looking for something. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.